Latino Americans is a national initiative. Um, it's funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Library Association. And we have uh, flyers about the, the fall programs out on the table out there, so we hope that you will pick those up. And, and then in the spring will be uh, after the January and February uh, winter is over with, we're going to resume our programming uh, for this project. Um, the, the Latino Americans project here in Baltimore is presented in partnership with Loyola University's um, Center for Innovative Urban Education and the Esperanza Center. Um, tonight, we're honored to welcome author Donnell Padilla Peralta to the Pratt Library. And we're also honored to have with us this evening Dr. Ana Maria Schwartz Caballero of UMBC. She is the she is associate professor of Spanish and second language education at UMBC, and she is also the coach the chair of the Baltimore City Hispanic Commission, and she's going to do the honors and introduce Donnell this evening. do something new in my life. I have things written on my iPad and not on a piece of paper. That's because the printer wasn't working. Okay. Well, good evening. Buenas noches. Uh, it's my privilege tonight to welcome and introduce to you Dr. Daniel Padilla Peralta, who will present his recently published memoir, undocumented a Dominican boy's odyssey from a homeless shelter to the Ivy League. As the title suggests, undocumented tells the story of a life journey from harsh and difficult circumstances in New York City to degrees with distinction from Princeton, Oxford, and Stanford, some of the world's best universities. But throughout Danielle's story, looms his undocumented status and the possible consequences of being found out. We all agree that Daniel Padilla Peralta's life and accomplishments are exceptional, but please consider that perhaps as many as six million immigrants share his family's story, having overstayed their tourist or students' legal temporary visa for any number of reasons. Like Danielle, there are today thousands of unauthorized high school graduates who, depending on where they live, can't afford to go to college because they can't pay out-of-state tuition or international student tuition, who can't apply for jobs because they don't have papeles, who can't visit their sick grandmother because if they leave the United States, they can't get back to the only country and way of life they have ever known. First and foremost, I believe it is for the many disillusioned young men and women trapped in similar circumstances that Danelle has written this book, to show them que si se puede. But this book should also be required reading for every government official in the United States so they can see the impact of their policies and the rulings on real life people. 
so they can see the incredible talent and resources that we as a nation are discarding. Daniel Padilla Peralta has written a powerful book that in the words of his fellow Dominican, the author Julia Alvarez, informs the mind and moves the heart to act. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Daniel Padilla Peralta. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, and since we are fewer in number, this will be very intimate. I hope that we can engage each other in conversation uh, after I read some passages from the book. But I want to begin by focusing on one of the remarks just made by Ana Maria Schwartz Caballero. Uh, it hinges on the use of terminology to describe the undocumented or the unauthorized. So the title of my book is Undocumented, but one of the puzzles that I've sought to confront in explaining the book and in promoting some of the arguments that are at the heart of the book is that in a sense, the lives of so many of the 12, 11, 12 million who are here undocumented or unauthorized are awash with documents. Uh, so I, I was describing both to Judy, who introduced uh, and was responsible for this uh, set up tonight, uh, and to Ana Maria, how recently, in the course of filing a permanent residency application, I had to put together all of this paperwork. And this paperwork required not only time and expertise, it also required a considerable amount of money, because you have to pay fees to, the U to USCIS. And it's getting across the nature of this investment uh, that is faced by many families, undocumented or documented, immigrant families uh, who have to face up to the challenges of dealing with USCIS and its Byzantine regulations that animates uh, my decision to promote the book uh, and to make a case for why immigration reform is so important in 21st century United States. But before I dive into the presentation of the book itself and its contents, um, and before I open it up to the questions that you'll have, just a few framing remarks about my own life. I arrived in the United States when I was four. Uh, my family and I originally came to seek prenatal care for my mother, who had been diagnosed with gestational diabetes. She had a pretty severe case of gestational diabetes. And she was told by doctors in Santo Domingo that it would be best for her to seek care in the United States. We arrived, my mom received the prenatal care she needed, and my little brother was born in Washington Heights, New York, uh, at Columbia Presbyterian. Not long after he was born, my mom experienced another round of medical complications and had to be hospitalized. And it was in the immediate aftermath of her release from the hospital that my mom and dad sat down to think about our future. Mom was seeing me enjoy kindergarten. She was hearing her sister say, oh, está aprendiendo inglés. He's, he's really learning English. He seems to be loving English. He seems to be so engaged uh, in his kindergarten classroom. And so my mom asked my dad, you know, what do you think about staying? Uh, maybe we should stay for him and for his brother. My dad's first response was, well, but we don't have papeles, and we would need to get papeles. Uh, by that point, our tourist visas had expired. And he went on to add, I want to return to Santo Domingo because we had professional lives there. We, we had both full-time jobs uh, that paid us well. 
We liked our lives there. Why would we return? Well, my mom kept insisting that we should consider staying in New York City for, the, for our future, for the future of her two sons. And eventually my dad relented. So my dad said, we need to get our papeles situation straightened out. So what did he do? He had asked some of his fellow Dominicans who lived in Washington Heights for advice, and they recommended that he seek out the services uh, of a man who it was represented to him could fix his asunto with these papeles, right? Uh, this man turned out to be a con artist. He fleeced my parents. Uh, he took away uh, what my parents had saved up, and he disappeared, and there was no resolution uh, to our paperwork situation. Undaunted, my parents decided to make a life of it in New York City. Uh, my dad began taking all of these odd jobs, while my mom took care of us and in turn started taking up some odd jobs herself. But eventually, it became apparent that they were not able to secure steady enough employment to make ends meet and to pay the rent. And so we started jumping around all over the place. We jumped around from Washington Heights in Manhattan to an apartment in the South Bronx, and then from the South Bronx to an apartment in Corona, Queens, and then from Corona, Queens to two apartments in Jackson Heights and an apartment in Elmhurst. When we weren't staying uh, with our relatives in Astoria, Queens, or in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, or in the Bronx. The reason for listing all of these different locations is to showcase how much we moved around because of the predicaments that we faced as a consequence of not having papeles. Eventually, my dad became really frustrated with this. And he sat down, my mom, for a conversation a few years into our time at the States. And he said, look, I'm heading back to Santo Domingo. I can't deal with this anymore. I don't like that I can't maintain secure employment. I don't like how difficult our lives are here. So I'm heading back. If you want to bring the kids with you, that would be great. But I'm heading back. He thought that in posing this ultimatum to my mom, uh, she might be uh, persuaded to relent and step back from her commitment. But she did not relent. She said, fine, you can head back, and we will separate, and I will stay here with the kids, and I will raise them here. And so one day in January of 1993, my dad packed up and left. Mom decided that she would do everything. She would be the superwoman. She would uh, work as many odd jobs as possible and be around to take care of her sons, uh, and it would all work out. But eventually, she wasn't able to continue paying rent for our apartment, and we were evicted. Not long after we were evicted, we entered the New York City homeless system. It was in the homeless system that I had the fortune of meeting someone who altered my life for the better. I met a volunteer arts instructor at the second shelter to which we had been assigned. And he believed, within a few minutes of talking to me, that I needed every imaginably good educational opportunity uh, that could be secured in the greater New York City area. And so he went to my mom and said, please let me help you and your son apply to private school in New York City. Maybe one of these private schools will put your child on the path uh, to excellence. He not only steered us through this process, and not only helped my mom, who did not speak English, and whose English is still not great today, to make sense of this process, he believed in my brother and me. And that belief, that affirmation, and the, pow and the empowerment that came with that affirmation transformed our lives in ways that go far beyond his being able to find a spot for us at a New York City independent private school.
from that school, I was fortunate to go to Princeton and then to graduate school at Oxford at Stanford. But as I made my way through each of these institutions, there was one problem, one problem that loomed over everything else, and that was my not having papeles. So the memoir charts how I made sense of this problem, how I tried to take steps to deal with it, but also what implications were in store for me as I tried to negotiate the many small and many major consequences of not having papeles. The small ones were things like travel. Uh, when I was in high school, I was invited to go on a trip to Florida. And it was domestic travel, and it was before 9-11. Uh, but even so, the moment I brought this up to my mom, mom said, well, we don't have any kind of ID for you. How are you going to be able to get on this plane? That worked out. But there were situations where there were no easy answers and, in fact, where there were no possible options available to us. A few years before that, my mother's dad had died in Puerto Plata, my mom's hometown. And she had received the call, and the moment she received the call, she burst into tears, and she was crying the whole night. And every 30 minutes or so, I would approach her, and I would try to console her. And at one point that night, I asked her, well, why can't we just go to Puerto Plata and just join your family for the funeral? And that's when she explained to me that we couldn't leave the United States because if we left, we would not be able to come back. It was at that moment that I resolved that no matter what, I would at the very least secure papeles for my mom and down the road secure papeles for myself. So we fast forward in time to 2015 and I'm happy to report that my mom has beaten me to U.S. citizenship. I am not a citizen. Uh, and I am still seeing uh, the full implications of having been out of status for so long as a child and as a young adult. The system as it's currently configured is not only Byzantine, not only complicated beyond understanding, not only exorbitantly expensive and cost prohibitive for the families who are trying to document, it also systematically enacts oppression. The current immigration system is a mechanism for oppression, and the lack of documentation is a technique for enforcing certain kinds of oppression. That is one of the core arguments I would want readers to take away from the book, and that's something that I'll hope to showcase in some of the material I select to read out to you now. So the book took a long time to get going. Uh, when I was a senior uh, at Princeton, I was approached about the possibility of writing a memoir. I had been profiled by a Wall Street Journal article, and in the immediate aftermath of the profile, uh, some friends uh, and then some people connected with Princeton had come up to me and asked, would you want to write a memoir? And I told them at the time that I was too busy being a college senior. There were other things on my mind like partying. Uh, and doing the work that I felt was most important, the academic work that I felt suited to do and competent at. But little by little, I came around to the idea that writing a memoir would be a good idea. And there were three reasons for this. The first reason was that I began to realize how important it was to get the narrative of an undocumented life out there. There are very few narratives of undocumented lives out in the public domain that receive anything close to the traction that they deserve. The second reason was to intervene in the policy debate. Nowadays, we hear a lot of talk about undocumented immigrants, and some of that talk is very explicitly xenophobic and nativist. Some of that talk 
uh, comes directly from the mouths of presidential candidates. The third motivation was to pave the way for many other narratives of undocumented lives in this country. So in this regard, I hope that the memoir initiates a conversation that will lead to the production of other memoirs and inspires others to write about the extent of their experiences with our immigration system, all to showcase the extent to which this immigration system inflicts long-term damage on the lives that people lead in this country, and yet to also demonstrate that in spite of the hurdles posed by this immigration system, undocumented and documented immigrants have led rich, fulfilling, accomplished, productive lives in the United States and should be acknowledged as having lived those lives and as being invaluable contributors to our country's social fabric. So with all of that prolegomena out of the way, uh, I'd like to read two, possibly three, excerpts from the book. The first excerpt comes from one of the opening chapters, uh, and it has to do with my mom, my brother, and me walking and something happening to us. The reason I'm reading this excerpt, uh, as I'll make clear at the conclusion uh, of the reading, is that we at the time were benefiting from a particular social service uh, we were receiving benefits through my brother. This is a very current issue now because one of the presidential candidates who was at the debate last night was, together with her husband, instrumental in a reconfiguration of the public benefits and public assistance system in 1996 that made it increasingly difficult for many categories of families to claim proper benefits and full benefits. So my story of receiving benefits is a story that is only possible in a pre-1996 era in New York. After 1996, things changed, and things did change, in my view, for the worse. So we begin. On weekends, Mom, Yando, and I would usually head to the associated supermarket in our neighborhood to buy groceries. Yando had become a hit with the supermarket staff because he danced up and down the grocery aisles whenever they played bachata and merengue over the PA. He was also the only reason we could shop. Back when Dad was still around, Mom had made a few trips to the local welfare office and signed Yando up for the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, WIC. I didn't really understand how the program worked. I just knew that we got help from the government. There were things we could and couldn't buy with it. Milk, cheese, bread, yes, but only certain kinds. Candy, quarter waters, no. We also couldn't use the check everywhere, only at places that had a We Accept Witch sign in the front. But the biggest problem was that the amount on the check was barely enough for Yando's food. He was getting wicked because he was under the age of five. Mom and I weren't eligible. Mom wasn't breastfeeding anymore, and I was eight. The wick helped, but once Dad left, we didn't have much money for food shopping. One day that winter, Mom had brought me along to a meeting with a Spanish-speaking caseworker to explain our situation. We had no money. Mom couldn't find a job because she had to take care of us. We were hungry. The caseworker asked a few questions. Are you ciudadanos? Do you have a green car? Mom replied, my son Yando is a citizen. My son Danelle and I are not. The caseworker looked up from her desk. Green card? No. Hmm. 
For a moment, the caseworker was silent. I wondered if she was going to ask more about our papeles, but instead she simply said, only your son Yando will be eligible for public assistance. Then she had mom fill out paperwork for the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC program. There are a lot of acronyms in this account. I saw the full name on one of the forms, but no one called it that. Not the caseworker, not mom, not her sisters when she talked to them about it later that day. It was just welfare. When mom finished signing the forms, the caseworker announced, you'll receive a fixed amount in food stamps and then in cash twice a month. $60 in food stamps, $42.50 in cash. Mom's face turned bright red. Is that all my son Yando is eligible for? That's not enough to feed a family. The caseworker shrugged. That's all. So, between WIC and welfare, we ate because of Yando. Our route to the supermarket was always the same. We'd pass the same flea market in church, the same bar, the same brick houses and carefully tended gardens of crisp yellow sunflowers and thorn-studded roses. One Saturday, we were just past the bar's entrance when I heard running feet behind us. A skinny young man slipped between mom and me, yanked off her purse, and flew down the street. As he turned left at the end of the block, I took off after him. I had no idea what I would do if I caught him, but I chased after him anyway. I ran as hard as I could. Even though I narrowed the gap between us with my initial burst, he began to pull away. My feet flew over the pavement. I'd never moved that fast in my life. But it wasn't fast enough. The gap grew larger. Two blocks up, I saw him jumping into a car and driving off. I stopped. My lungs were on fire. I turned around and saw Mom and Yando hurrying to catch up. In a minute or so, she was standing at my side. Mom, I couldn't catch him, I panted. I'm sorry. The purse contained our welfare benefits card. Without it, we couldn't shop. At our local bodega, Mom bought some food on credit until a new card came in the mail. Although our lives at the time were very precarious, and even more precarious once we entered the shelter system, I was doubly and triply fortunate in that at every step of the way, I had people who presented or set me up with good books to read. And it's in no small part due to their work and due to the work of libraries, like the one we're in tonight, that my trajectory became possible. So the second bit I'll read is from my experience in a particular library, the library that uh, was held in the sa- housed in the same building as the shelter in which I lived, the Chinatown shelter, where my family was first placed after we had passed through the emergency relocation center in New York City. One evening, I came across a book in the shelter library titled How People Lived in Ancient Greece and Rome. I took it down from its shelf and brought it back to our room to read. Most of the front cover and the first few pages were covered in doodles and scrawls, but the opening, doodle-free paragraphs of the text were set against illustrations of a man in a toga reading a scroll, a young man strumming a lyre with another laurel-crowned youth looking on attentively, a black vase decorated with a band of warriors, an open scroll 
a spear and shield-wielding warrior, an aqueduct, fortifications, and a temple. The first few sentences of the book grabbed my attention. Western civilization, it read, was formed from the union of early Greek wisdom and the highly organized legal minds of early Rome. The Greek belief in a person's ability to use his powers of reason, coupled with Roman faith and military strength, produced a result that has come to us as a legacy or gift from the past. This legacy has grown and blossomed into a smooth, colorful way of life, covering equally the arts and the sciences, the one and the many. My eyes were glued to the page. I hadn't had quite that same experience of intense focus when learning about the people and customs of Spain or about the Dominican Republic's presidents, about which I'd been doing a lot of reading in the shelter system. It had been fun to learn those things. It was even more fun to know that I knew them. But this book talked about a legacy and a way of life. Those words made Greece and Rome seem much more important than anything I'd read about before. The book began with a chapter on sites in early Greece and Rome. There were maps of the Mediterranean in the time of the Roman Republican Empire, regions shaded in blue and purple and orange that were dotted with cities whose names were familiar. Rome, because that's where the Pope lived, Mom told me. Athens, because Dad had once said to me that the most famous Greek philosophers were Athenians. And others that were unfamiliar, Corinth, Mycenae, Thebes. There were descriptions of the climate followed closely by an end-of-chapter question for further thought. Do you think the locations in which these cultures developed had anything to do with the advanced nature of their civilizations? Why? I paused for a moment, stumped. I was encouraged when I saw that one of the book's previous owners had traced a box around the Y. I kept on reading about the invasions of the Persians and the domination of Athens, the Peloponnesian Wars, Alexander the Great, and his conquest of the entire known world. With the help of drawings and maps, I imagined what it would have been like to fight in Darius's army, to drink wine at a symposium while poetry was recited, to talk with philosophers. But then a recap question on page 41 left me searching for answers that I couldn't seem to find in the book itself. Quote, in a civilization such as early Greece, where man was so highly respected, why were some people made slaves and treated cruelly? Is it possible for people to act in the same way today? I'd read about slaves in library textbooks. I'd come across the word discrimination and learned about its roots in slavery. Talking to mom, I'd also learned that in Santo Domingo there had been slaves too. Negros from Africa, Indios from the island. The white slave owners had had children with them, black and white slave children. And that's why, she said, Dominicans now were so many different colors. Now I was learning that the Greeks had slaves too. All the good things that they had done to create modern civilization. And they'd had slaves. Next in my new book came the Romans. They'd conquered the Greeks. They'd conquered everyone else in the Mediterranean. I learned that kings had ruled them first and that after the kings were kicked out, Rome had become an oligarchic republic, usually headed by consuls, but also in emergencies, by a dictator. The Roman dictator wasn't like a modern one. Not even Julius Caesar was like Trujillo, the longtime dictator of the Dominican Republic, whom I described earlier in the book. In my mind, I heard mom's favorite joke. 
Desde que Brutus mató a César, los Brutus viven sin cesar. Impossible to render the full punning force in English, uh, but from the time that Brutus killed Caesar, brutes live without ceasing would be an adequate enough translation. When mom first told the joke, I laughed because I felt it was the grown-up thing to do. I didn't really get what was so funny about the joke. Now I got it. I read and reread the book and never returned it to the library. That made me a bad library user. One of the significant aspects of this episode that I've tried to convey to students I've interacted with over the years is how the Greek and Roman past gets modeled and represented as part of a legacy. But one of the other things that I hope we can talk a little bit about in a Q&A after is how the promotion of a Greek and Roman past as a legacy displaces other sites of historical knowledge too. So why was it that I was so enchanted by this Greek and Roman world in comparison to my somewhat enchantment with Dominican history, but not nearly as intense in nature or substance as my fascination with the Greek and Roman world? What would later occupy my energies and what I will be very happy to talk about in the Q&A is how the Greek and Roman world continues to be received and appropriated, not only in the United States, but in Latin American contexts as well. We can talk about all the Dominican children who are named after Greek generals, Themistocles, and their ilk. The third and final bit I'll read is about my transition from my neighborhood and family context to a ritzy private school I began attending in the seventh grade. Thanks to the work of my mentor from the shelter system whom I mentioned earlier, I was admitted to collegiate on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The first few months there were eye-opening, not only because it was a radically different school from any place I'd ever been before, but because at this ritzy private school I discovered that there were students who had command of resources and money and houses that extended well beyond anything I thought was even possible. They had all these things that I did not have. I did not even know one could have all of these things. And so in this part of the book, I talk a little bit about that experience and its implications for me. None of my classmates talked about money, but many of them did talk about things they had or places they regularly went to that seemed to cost a lot of money. My parents just got me a new computer. My family's going to our country house this weekend. We're going skiing in Colorado. My parents are taking me to France. My go-to reply every time was, cool. I didn't want to ask them questions about where their parents got the money to do what they did. And I tried my hardest not to think too much about how baller their lives seemed in comparison with mine. Instead, I threw myself into studying for tests and writing and rewriting class papers. If I wasn't going to make it on the sports field, I was most certainly going to rock every single graded assignment. After a few early stumbles, I began to earn A's in almost all of my classes. I'd show off my report card to Jeff, my mentor, who was still coming over every other weekend or so to hang out on Bradhurst. Very proud of you, Donnell, he'd say, smiling and high-fiving me. With mom, things were a bit different. I was beginning to realize that my good grades were the only weapon at my disposal for countering and deflecting mom's greatest fear. 
that Yando and I would grow up to be tigres. She never explained what she meant by this word, which is a little challenging to translate into English. It's not tigers. I gathered that she had in mind the slick-talking, disrespectful, foul-mouthed teenagers who paraded themselves daily on Cristina, her favorite Univision talk show. But even those endemoniados that my mom would single out did not fully embody what Tigre meant to her. The Tigre was the realization of every single conceivable flaw in her children that would confirm her as a bad parent. In mom's conception of the Tigre, the role of dress was paramount. Don't dress like that, she'd say. You look like a Tigre. (laughs) She practically worshipped my new school's dress code because it forced me to wear a blazer and tie. But I didn't want to wear my blazer and tie on the walk to and from the subway every morning. So she tried to guilt me. Why don't you want to look your best all the time, me? She'd say. In response, I wanted to shout, I will get jumped if I walk around Bradhurst in a blazer and tie. Already I get looks from the people sitting on the park benches. But raising my voice at mom would guarantee me either the pela or having to kneel in front of the Santos for five hours. So I had to rely on passive resistance to get the point across. I came back home every afternoon with blazer in hand and tie removed. Eventually, mom yielded. Emboldened, I pressed my luck. I hated on the jeans mom had recently bought me. Mom, I tell her, I can't wear these tight jeans. They're embarrassing. But here mom did not budge. My friends from Resurrection wore baggy jeans. Some of my classmates at Collegiate wore baggy jeans. But under no circumstances was I even to think about wearing them. A man, she'd say, doesn't dress like a tigre with his pants falling on the ground. But then, to my shock, mom relented again. She bought me a pair of relaxed fit jeans on the condition that I always wear them up to the belly button. Como un hombre, like a man. I thought that was some Steve Urkel shit. Out of sight, I lowered them. In her presence, they came back up. But she'd sometimes catch me wearing them low, and when she did, she'd warn me that I was on the fast track to becoming a tigre. In response, I'd whip out my collegiate report card. Yes, mom, I'd say. I'll become a tigre, all right. A tigre who does, gets A's in school. She wasn't buying that logic. You should be doing well in school. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I went straight to our local church after school and met mom there. She was always at Resurrection, our church, for prayer group meetings, adult catechetical instruction, church cleanup before and after the weekday evening 7 o'clock mass. To get to church from the subway, I'd usually walk up Adam Clayton Powell Avenue from the 148th Street Terminal and turn left. But now I had a problem. Gino and Mouseface, two cats who had jumped me the year before, liked to hang out either on the corner of 151st or in the park across the street. About a month after I'd been snuffed for the first time, I saw Gino and Mouseface again. They were clowning around with their crew on the north corner of 151st. Trying to avoid being spotted, I crossed Adam Clayton Powell and stayed on the south side of 151st too late. 
Gino recognized me and started shouting, hey, yo. I could hear Mouseface laughing. Keep walking, you scared-ass motherfucker. I kept walking. I justified it to myself. I was outnumbered, and Gino's friends were all bigger than me. But really, I knew the truth. I was a scared-ass motherfucker. This continued every other week for a few months. If Gino or his crew made a move like they were going across the street and come after me, I would just sprint up 151st to church. But one day, I saw Mouseface with Gino's friends, but no Gino. Mouseface stared at me, but no one shouted, and no one talked shit. Was my beef over? I got some scoop from an old classmate of mine who was a cousin of a cousin of a cousin of someone who knew Gino. The dude had been jammed up. Some juvie shit, theft. I felt so relieved. The beef was over. So I thought. But later that week, when I stepped out of the public library on 152nd Street and Adam Clayton Powell, Mouseface saw me from a few feet away and rolled right up to my face. He and his crew had moved off the corner bodega and into the open area of the housing development next door to the library, just up the block. I froze right where I was standing. Aw, this little nigga. You scared, huh? He brought his fist up like he was about to punch me. I flinched. Ha, you scared, you scared. Get the fuck out of my face. I walked away. He and his boys exploded in laughter. And it was reconciling the tension between my neighborhood upbringing on the one hand, the need to protect myself on the other, and adjusting to a different academic context at my private school that occupied so much of my energy throughout middle and high school. But the challenge, the challenge that supplanted and in time displaced the other challenges of adjustment and reconciliation, was ultimately one of sorting out what my place was in these many different communities. Communities that, for all of my issues with people in each of these communities, I had come to call home. As much as I came to dislike Mouseface and Gino, I realized that they too were the products of their circumstances. And so my attention to the structural factors behind our differential upbringings and what had made us take the different paths that we took was crucial to my own self-discovery and my own realization of who I was and what I wanted to be. So, with that said, I think it's probably time that I open it up to some questions from you all. I've done a lot of reading and talking, but we're small, so I should get to hear from all of you. I went over to Oxford after receiving a postgraduate fellowship at Princeton. I, when I was a senior, I was awarded a fellowship to study at Oxford for two years. I left the United States not knowing if I would be allowed to return because when I left the United States, I was still undocumented. Uh, and because I had overstayed my visa as a kid, that meant that I was subject to an automatic 10-year bar on reentry. So when I arrived at Oxford, one of my biggest worries was precisely this 10-year bar. Uh, and it quickly dominated much of my thinking in the first few weeks of my time at Oxford. Oxford was very different from any academic institution I had attended before. It was different because 
the graduate students were left pretty much to their own devices. I had practically nothing in the way of supervision. Uh, I was responsible and accountable to a graduate supervisor uh, at another college, not my own college at Oxford. And every few weeks he would check up on me, ask me how my work was coming along. But other than that, I was left to do my own thing. That meant that I did a lot of exploring. I would go wander around Oxford. I would meet up with some of my Oxford friends, including Tom, who's in the audience right now. I did a lot of reading. I also tried to figure out what the next steps would be in my migratory experience. Because as I settled down to life at Oxford, I realized that the United States government wasn't kidding about this 10-year ban business. They were very real. I applied for a short-term visa my second month at Oxford to visit my family for the holidays, and I was rejected immediately that same day. Eventually, while at Oxford, I received a job offer, and that allowed me, uh, a job offer in the States that allowed me to return to the States. And so that took one concern off my mind. But I also did a lot of traveling. I discovered that the Brits had a very interesting conception of what race and racism were. It was different from some of the conversations I had been having in the United States. In some ways, the conversation was more sophisticated. In other ways, the conversation was less sophisticated. I also discovered that if my previous institutions, like my high school or Princeton, had had issues of diversity, diversity and inclusion, Oxfords were on a whole other order of magnitude because the year that I started attending Oxford, there had been something like nine students from Caribbean backgrounds accepted to the entire university. So that was my experience at Oxford. More questions. In some ways, I'd like to think that my moving through these institutions and gaining access to all of these educational opportunities was somewhat overdetermined. Uh, but I can't deny that Jeff was instrumental not only because he proactively sought out this new set of educational opportunities for me, but because he modeled a certain kind of fatherhood in my life that I really needed. My mom would always say, I am your mother and your father. I could fulfill both of these roles. But she couldn't. She couldn't always fulfill those roles. And Jeff was there to do these things that, in hindsight, stand out because they were so touching. They represented the kind of fathering that I otherwise would not have had. He took us rollerblading. Uh, and I realized that I really liked rollerblading. Uh, he took us bowling. I discovered that I was not a terrible bowler, although I'm not a great bowler either. He took us on long walks. Uh, and together with my mom's own habit of taking long walks, this engendered in me a passion to take long walks. I took a long walk today. All of these little things he did with us were instrumental in cultivating the kind of person I eventually became. And I can't imagine the kind of person I would have become without him. I can imagine a world in which I may have had access to some of the educational opportunities that I enjoyed, even without his interventions. 
But he made me confident in the belief that in, not only would I thrive at these institutions, but that I deserved to be in those institutions. He empowered me to think that I had a place in these institutions and that I belonged. And that was irreplaceable. There was no one else in my life who was telling me quite that in the same way as he did. Confidence is, no. Confidence is huge. Uh, I, when I met Jeff, I was confident of one thing. I was confident that I could read a book and tell you what was in that book. That I knew. My teachers had validated that for me. But there were different orders of confidence, uh, and Jeff was instrumental in instilling an appreciation for the types of confidence I would need further on in life. There was a confidence of knowing that no matter what new obstacle would present itself, I could overcome it and be fine. There was a confidence of knowing that not knowing all the answers or not being in a position to have that expertise was fine. You could learn it. You could master it. This is not something that everyone has ingrained into them. These are habits and manners that are learned over time. It was so instrumental that he intervened precisely when I was 9, 10, and 11. Because it was at that stage, right on the cusp of adolescence, that I was beginning to come to grips with some of the insecurities that dominated adolescence. And for him to be a father figure for me at that precise juncture was invaluable. One of the episodes I mention in the book is my first encounter with the Odyssey, which, as you'll have gathered, made its way into the subtitle. And one of the reasons I was so taken with the Odyssey when I first encountered it, I was 11 turning 12, was because book one of the Odyssey presents us with Telemachus, the son of Odysseus who has never met his father. Uh, He doesn't really know his father. His father left when he was a baby. When we meet Telemachus, he is greeting Mentor, uh, who is none other than Athena in disguise. And Athena prompts him to say something about himself. And Telemachus says that his father is Odysseus, but he doesn't know who his father is. And he has no idea if his father will come back home to him one day. And reading that book, while learning from and experiencing Jeff's company, was important to me because it held out the possibility of my having a father figure and my, in time, becoming a father figure to other people. So the kind of empowerment he provided me was twofold. First, he was a father figure. But second, he also persuaded me that my not having the father that I thought I needed in the form of my biological father who had left and gone back to Santo Domingo was not an insuperable insuperable hurdle. I would be fine. I had to look to other father figures and cultivate other father figures. And in time, that would make me a father figure, too. And that was okay. Yeah. Ah, the next book is... Perhaps not quite as riveting, although I'd like to think it is. So my day job is as a Roman historian. I I study Roman history and Roman Republican history in particular. And so the next book will be a study of Roman religion. I'm hugely interested in questions of religion, in part because I had, thanks to my mom, uh, a relentlessly Catholic upbringing, as I discuss uh, in the book. 
And that upbringing sensitized me to issues of community building and community formation. How, how do churches as institutions uh, create and sustain communities? So my second book is an account of how that happens in ancient Rome, uh, in a period before Christianity. Uh, how do we think about the operations of religion in this context? And, well, how do we write about them? Uh, because we don't have that many sources to work with. Yes. So I've been fortunate to be on ABC. I was on, I did a segment on ABC's Tiempo programming a few weeks ago. Uh, I had also earlier done an interview with C-SPAN uh, that aired at the end of August and that is now up on YouTube. And I had also done a series of interviews with a number of print publications that have come out uh, over the past few months. There was a piece in the New York Times in July as well as a piece uh, in, the in the New York Daily News uh, continuing since then, there have been a number of publications in some of the regional, uh, a number of articles in some of the regional publications, uh, and I've continued to do a variety of blog and podcast appearances, including a podcast that will appear next week with the Baltimore Sun, uh, the Roughly Speaking podcast. Oh, not yet, but I hope so. <laughs> Well, they're all big figures in the memoir, so it's only fitting uh, to give an accounting of their lives, too. My brother's in law school uh, in New York City. He's at Fordham Law uh, in his second year. Uh, my, my mom remarried and, 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 as I mentioned, became a U.S. citizen, um, and she is happily settled down in New York City but making regular trips to Santo Domingo. She and my stepdad uh, bought a little house outside of Moca uh, in, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, my biological father, with whom I'm still in regular communication, uh, lives in Santo Domingo Oeste, uh, and he and I have, over the years, uh, exchanged all kinds of emails about every, anything and everything. One of the many fortunate aspects of getting older and, and realizing uh, the full extent of my mom and dad's separate trajectories uh, was gaining a new appreciation for who he was as a man, uh, what had... Uh, posed themselves as obstacles to him, some obstacles that he felt himself inadequate or incapable of overcoming, what had accounted for his feelings at those times. So over the years, I've developed a great deal of sympathy and understanding for him. Uh, and that was something that did not come easily uh, because for much of my teenage and early adulthood uh, years, I simply faulted him for having been absent. I thought that it represented a kind of weakness on his part. But to gain that understanding of his life, uh, and to be in a position where I can reflect on that understanding has, I think, been one of the great benefits of the past few years and of working on the book.
So I see myself as having several obligations, first of all. Um, the obligation is to use the positions of privilege that I have entered over the past few years as a graduate of these institutions and now as someone uh, who holds a post at an Ivy League university and is going to another post at another Ivy League university to speak to the issues that affect undocumented immigrants and other immigrants and black and brown bodies in the United States and beyond. So I think it's incumbent upon me to now, having enjoyed the benefits of these institutions uh, that have rallied to my side, to speak to those institutions and to speak to stakeholders in those institutions about what they need to be doing uh, to reach out uh, and take care of and be mindful to the needs of black and brown bodies in our country and beyond. So in the first instance, I see myself as having obligations, uh, obligations that I feel very committed to fulfilling. I also see myself as having lived this exceptional life that despite its exceptionalism can speak to the difficulties faced by many categories of immigrants and non-immigrants in our society. So one of the responsibilities I see in talking about the book and in talking about the arc of life traced in the book is how to convey to an audience, not just the audience here, but other audiences uh, in other parts of the country, that Undocumented immigrants of all backgrounds are exceptional people themselves and have these incredible stories to tell us and have fulfilled so many iterations and versions of the American dream. And yet, many of them are systematically excluded and policed away from describing their attainments as amounting to the American dream. And so what I want to promote and what I see as one of my other obligations is the need to appreciate the immigrant experience, the undocumented and documented immigrant experience, as being among the best testaments to the continuing efficacy of the American dream as an ennobling concept that we have. And so those are the two sort of major visions I have of myself and of my own commitments going forward. And especially the second vision uh, interweaves itself with my reflections on what it means to live a life that will be viewed by many as exceptional, but that nonetheless is, is, under, is very structured by an attention to the exceptionalism of other lives and the need for other lives to be honored and respected. Absolutely. Uh, advocacy is what I see among my obligations to these universities. And I think that advocacy takes several different forms. Uh, so one of the forms that uh, I'm interested in is, of course, speaking to stakeholders at these institutions about what they need to do to promote diversity. I also think that mentorship is really important. Uh, and moving forward, one of the responsibilities that I have to juggle is how uh, to remain on this academic trajectory of productivity and of constant writerly output uh, that is expected uh, of those of us who choose this life with the responsibilities of teaching and mentoring, which I think are so indispensable to the cultivation of a new generation of advocates and leaders. Oh, no, thank you.
Absolutely. No, I, I think the point you've made in referring to those who become undocumented or become homeless as adults is extremely important for us to keep in mind. When I was younger, uh, there were several things that I did have going in my favor even as we were making our way through the shelter system. One was that I was young, so I was still in a position where I would be entering the, entering the public school system uh, and I would be exposed to teachers and mentors in this system. Uh, the other advantage is uh, one that is a little more difficult to parse explicitly, uh, but it has to do with this. When I was younger, I did not process everything that was happening to me. There were some things I was immediately aware of as and when they happened to me. So I knew that we were in this shelter and I did not think it was a good place. And I knew that my mom was really distraught that we were in this shelter. But there were many things that I did not have to actively process on a day-to-day -day basis, that my mother had to process on a day-to-day -day basis, and that made her life incredibly challenging. So one of the things I discovered when I began to sort of reflect on my mom's life as preparation for writing the memoir is just the sheer scope of things that she had to face as a, as a woman who was navigating the system by herself. Uh, the number of times she was faced with the threat of sexual assault, for example. The number of times she had to struggle to explain uh, to people in the shelter system and then continuing onwards uh, in the social work system that there was simply nothing she had and no recourses or resources she had. Uh, the number of times she had to humble herself in these ways that can be sometimes degrading and that were sometimes deliberately orchestrated as degrading. I did not have to deal with those things. That experience of navigating the homeless system has left a deep imprint on my mom. Uh, she has been traumatized by it. And so one of the considerations that I think is important to bear in mind when we talk about the experiences of adults who are making this way through, their way through the system and through other systems like it is the significance of trauma. That's not to say that young, uh, the kids and young adults who make their way through the system are not also subject to trauma. I would not be here today if I didn't think that to some degree the experiences that I had traumatized me and left a deep searing imprint on me. But it is the case that we need to think more proactively about the kinds of services that can be provided to adults who experience these situations. I was fortunate in my youth. Uh, that is not the case uh, for many who are forced to endure the experiences that come with navigating the homeless system and ancillary systems.
New York City was huge. Uh, it, was, it was huge because of the concentration of, of human resources and human capital, and it was huge because of the networks that exist of human resources and capital that enabled me and enabled my family to feel connected to different communities in the area. So it mattered, for example, that every neighborhood we lived in, there were Dominicans who my mom could connect to. It made her feel much, much more at home. In my case, though, I, I, I would want to insist on one thing, which is that I also felt more flexible in the nature and scope of my attachments and more plastic in those than my mom was. So I felt that I could, if we had been sort of thrown as we were uh, into communities where, in fact, there were no Dominicans or even no Spanish speakers, I felt that I, it would be okay. I would figure something out. And part of that had to do with the sense of empowerment that came with uh, someone like Jeff coming into my life and saying, you can do this. It doesn't matter where you end up you're gonna be fine. I have had the chance over the past few years to speak to undocumented immigrants who have grown up in contexts that are as far removed from New York as you can imagine. Uh, kids who have grown up in very rural and very small communities, sometimes without other uh, children or young adults or full adults uh, who have backgrounds equivalent to or similar to theirs. And they have traced different uh, trajectories to uh, the kinds of attainments that they've been able uh, to reach, but they have nonetheless made these great strides forward in their lives too. So I would say that it is certainly possible, and it is in fact tangible to see, that these communities, even when they're, they're scattered across and to some extent deracinated or isolated from potential support communities, uh, it is possible for these communities and the members of those communities uh, to make tangible progress towards the fulfillment of what we call the American dream. However, it is hard if you do not have a support system or matrix of support systems that enables this kind of interactivity that fuels the stories of people like me who lived in cities where there happened to be communities that spoke our language, had our food, uh, and could allow us to at least feel at home for a moment. Uh, so my answer then is to say it is difficult if one is not in a city like New York or in a city or a rural or a urban environment uh, where communities uh, similar to one's own home community exist. But it's not impossible. And there are plenty of stories of undocumented immigrants that can speak to that. No, oh, thank you. Thanks for coming out. <laughs>